as most of you are probably aware, we have been raising funds for COVID-19 relief for some of our regions beyond uh, church members in other parts of the world who are suffering a lot more than we are. And we were able to support a number of... We've got a group of churches around the city of Guadalajara in Mexico, and that's where that young couple is from. I had the pleasure of meeting with them online along with a number of other uh, church leaders in Mexico who are dealing with some of the issues surrounding COVID. Uh, we've just been be- just starting to have this relationship with the churches in Mexico. Our sister church, um, uh, Revive in Missoula, has been working in Mexico for many years and has a relationship with these churches, but uh, we're also the- now having the opportunity to do that. So we were able to send what we were able to raise uh, I've suddenly forgot the number off the top of my head, but I think it was somewhere around 5,000. Uh, we were able to split some of that up between the churches in, near Guadalajara and also Rio de Janeiro. We also have a church on a little island in northern Brazil that doesn't really have communication, so we were unable to actually communicate with them, but uh, they're a part of Regions Beyond as well. So thanks for your generosity with that. Uh, looking forward to the days ahead where we uh, continue to network with these churches and get to know these people more in person. So thank you for that. Pretty cool, huh? That we're able to have that kind of connection and relationship. Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 7? I might be moving a little bit quickly today because I, I do feel like I have quite a bit to cover, but I'm really excited about all of it as usual, so I've got to, to push a little bit. But it will be, basically my message today will be based out of Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, verses 11 through 22, which I'm going to start out reading today. Um, Chaotic times like this, we, we talked, you know, I addressed things fairly directly and a little bit unusually last week, and BG had mentioned a few weeks before that what a strange time we find ourselves in, and it's, it causes us to start to think about things in a different light. We've, we've taken things for granted for a long time, and then shake-up like this happens, and we start evaluating, and we start looking at what's going on and uh, asking some tough questions and examining our hearts, and it's a chaotic moment, and it, it causes people to consider things more closely, and I think that's wise as a church for us to do so. The context of this story in Second Chronicles is Solomon is the third king of Israel. The first king was Saul, second was David, third king is Solomon. He has built the temple. The temple is the place that God had, uh, you know, came and, and basically his presence resided there. You know, and this is the way God began to introduce himself to his people is, is, is by bringing his presence into this temple. And they'd had this huge celebration. They'd had massive amounts of sacrifices. Then they have this miraculous thing where fire comes from heaven and literally consumes in front of thousands of people this sacrifice that's taken place on the altar. And it's just a huge celebration for Israel because the temple is completed and they've got a house for their God, so to speak. But even they knew that God could not be contained by the temple. They even said so much, and yet it was something they did to honor him. So this is in that moment when, when Solomon has dedicated the temple and they had all this time of celebration and we pick up in verse 11 and I'm going to read the whole thing and then we're going to start to unpack it. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. And I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, 
If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying you shall not lack a man to rule in Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and go to serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from the land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight, I will cast, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. When we read a story like this, it's important to realize that while in those days the presence of God was in a physical temple, a transition took place with the coming of Christ. Many, many years later, about 700 years later, Jesus came. And at that point, you know, after he, he died and he, and he was resurrected and ascended into heaven, uh, about, about the year 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And today it's where, uh, speculated, that's where the Dome of the Rock is today in Jerusalem, is where that temple once stood. And it's part of the reason for all the controversy we see in the Middle East. But our understanding is that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are now the place where God resides. He isn't confined to a particular building. He's not, this building isn't a temple per se. We are then the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So when we read a story like this, we read it for what it literally is and what's going on in that time, but we also then can draw meaning for ourselves about ourselves being a temple as well. Something dedicated to God, a place where his presence resides, a place where his eyes are fixed, a place that he is attentive to. You and I, he comes and he dwells in each one of us. When Jesus died on the cross, that, that veil in the temple split from top to bottom and the presence of God was no longer confined to a particular facility. So when we're reading a story like this in the Old Testament, we need to keep in mind the the way that it's relevant even to us today. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Last week I, I mentioned this passage just a little bit, but I want to unpack it a little more starting in verse 13, and I drew attention to this last week. This is God speaking, and he said, When I, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. When I command the locusts to devour the land, or when I send pestilence among my people, would he? Would God do that kind of thing? Our God is very, very passionate for our full attention. He's very much uh, set on being God in our lives. And when other things become God in our lives, 
He will do everything he can to see that removed and to see himself reinstated in a place of authority in our lives. When I, when I do these things, would he? He did. Indeed, Israel went on to not honor God in the way that he was challenging them to at this time. He's, he's saying, when, when these things come, my people need to remember who I am and to put me in my right place to seek me and those kinds of things, which we'll talk about more in a minute. 200 years later, See, here's what happened. After Solomon was king, Israel divided. The nation of Israel and its 12 tribes, it divided. The nation of Judah or the tribe of Judah separated out as a separate nation. And so from this point on in the Old Testament, after Solomon's reign, you see two different nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And the nation of Israel falls before the nation of Judah does by about 100 years. About 200 years after this, the Assyrians came and they took over Israel, the northern kingdom that had separated out. And the circumstances of that are well documented in the scripture. I mentioned a passage in Amos chapter 5 last week that I didn't unpack, but I did make reference to it. What happened? This is what happened. God sent this difficulty to his people. Why? Because they were in sin. And Amos draws attention to what those things were. He's saying, you've been oppressing the poor. You've been in in deep sexual sinfulness. You've been worshiping other idols. They worshiped other gods. They adopted the gods of the culture around them. You've been denying justice to the people that deserve it. And when we read through these things, they're heavy, and they can be weighty feeling, and we can kind of start to feel like bummed out because of all this difficult things that, that happened. And he says in Amos chapter 5, these are powerful words, so brace yourself. I hate, I despise your feasts. What were the feasts? The feasts were something that the Jews were commanded to celebrate on a regular basis. It was a religious festival, basically. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kayun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This is what God said to Israel. Why did he say this? Why did God say this to Israel? Because, wait a minute, they're going through all the motions. They're holding the feasts. They're singing songs of worship. They're going through all the religious motions, but God is rejecting it. Why? Because their hearts weren't really with him. They were serving other gods. They were were being godly people in name only and not in reality. God really is more concerned about the heart. When he asks the question, you didn't bring, when he mentions, you didn't bring me sacrifices in the desert for 40 years, does God really need the sacrifices? Does God really need our worship? Does he really need us to do this? No. God's totally self-sufficient. What is he more interested in? 
He's interested in the heart of his people, and he will do in, uh, uh, significant things to get, catch the attention of his people and draw them back to him. When you read through all these Old Testament prophecies, they're almost depressing. But almost always you will find in them a thread of God saying, but return to me. Return to me with all of your heart. Give me all of yourself. I will have mercy. I will bless. Just return to me. And yet we see the pattern over and over where he says, but you would not return to me. And so they find themselves in this awful position. And, and we, we, need to, we need to take note of what has taken place in history and in the scripture, and learn and draw wisdom from it for ourselves. I don't know why what's going on today is going on. Nobody does. None of us really know. Just put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites back in this time. What they saw was an Assyrian army that conquered them. They had another nation invade and besiege their city in Samaria, uh, and, and they took over. Yet behind the scenes, this is what God was doing. And the prophets were saying, return to me with all your heart. Don't serve these other gods. But finally, God has had enough, and he sends them into exile for worshiping other gods. Judah wasn't that far behind. About 100 years later, they get taken over by the Babylonians, and they go into exile in Babylon. Same thing. I mean, if, if, you're not, if you don't really start to dissect the Old Testament Scripture, it all just looks like one nation that's being prophesied to this destruction for their sinfulness. But uh, really, there were two separate nations going on uh, during this time. I, I just want to draw attention to one king in particular. His name was Manasseh, and he was a horribly evil king. He, he took idols um, Asherah and Baal and, and a god of war. They took these idols and set them up right inside the temple. Now again, when we read about the temple, sometimes we've got to stop and fast forward into our time and space and go, what does that mean for me today? Am I pulling idols into my temple? Am I setting up things in my heart that I worship right alongside God or even elevate higher than God? Things that are opposed to God. Because idolatry, while we don't carve images and set them up and bow down to them and worship them like maybe they did, it's very, very strong representation of things that today we set up as idols in our own life. Things that I think really the test in my mind when it comes down to idolatry is um, obeying a principle that doesn't, isn't necessarily godly. Where did I get an idea or a principle or a way of a mode of operation if it doesn't come from God? then it's something that I have to challenge and consider. Manasseh was more wicked than even the people that God had conquered before Israel moved in. He sacrificed his own son on an altar. See, the, the human sacrifice became part of what Israel was doing. They'd take their, their babies and they'd throw them in a large fire to Molech or sacrifice on an altar. God said in, in 2 Kings after Manasseh had been so evil. What's interesting about Manasseh is later in his life he repented, believe it or not. He got captured, he was um, enslaved, and he repented and God freed him, but, but it was so evil what he had done. 
prior to those days. Therefore, thus says the Lord, this is in 2 Kings chapter 21, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. Ahab was a king in Israel. It was very wicked. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Generation, even out of Egypt to this day. Okay, this this is like, this is like, uh, so we're talking 1400, we're talking... 800 years? For 800 years. We, we have this temptation, or I do sometimes when I'm reading the Old Testament, to go, wow, God, you were pretty harsh with these guys, but I want you to think about this. For 800 years, God worked with Israel. From the time he brought them out of Egypt and gave them his law and was trying to, to turn their hearts over to him, they rebelled against him over and over and over and over for 800 years. That is patience. What was going on 800 years ago, 700 years ago? You just think about that. I mean, the Europeans hadn't even discovered the continent of North America yet. That's how long God was working with Israel and how long they rebelled against him. And finally, my point is this. God is patient. He's very loving. See, we have to remind ourselves that God's motivation is is not to be mean. God's motivation is love. God's ultimate motivation in all of this is love. And we have a hard time seeing that in such wrath because God is also just. In fact, I don't think God could be loving if he wasn't just, which is an interesting thing to unpack. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Not God was so frustrated with the world, not God was so fed up or God was so angry or God just ran out of other ideas. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. All of this Old Testament process is foreshadowing the coming of Christ and God's demonstration of his love for all of us. The focal point and the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament is, is, is Jesus himself. It all is pointing towards that. See, there never was going to be a deal where we could, we could live up to a certain standard in order to be good enough for God. That was never going to be possible, and God knew that. And it, by his own hand, he worked out salvation for us, that we could be saved. As we read through and draw meaning from the stories that were happening before Jesus arrived, arrived we need to keep in mind that was his trajectory. Marriage is often the analogy he would use. So he's in this covenant relationship, and marriage is a reflection of that. And, and the idea of marriage is that we be faithful, right, as a reflection of our own relationship with God and God's relationship with his church. But often he would draw this illustration that you are committing adultery. You are, you're prostituting yourself. He, he uses language in the Old Testament that I still blush when I read. That's how strong language he uses when he describes when his people stray from him. And what it feels like to him. It feels like adultery. It feels like a faithlessness. But his motivation is love to keep the covenant and to hold it together. The destruction can be overwhelming as we read about it. But we've got to see in it that 
God's heart is for restoration, although it sometimes comes with great difficulty. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, and so this so reveals, I think, the heart of God in all this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Over and over. Jesus were. Notice the past tense of this. You know, Jesus, Jesus is God. He was there. He saw how, how I, I so wanted to do this. I so wanted to bring you under my wing, but you were not willing. Not willing. And it's, it's tragic and it's sad. And yet, it was part of God's plan. It goes on in verse 14, but going back to Second Chronicles. If my people, who are called by my name, who are his people? You know, in this particular point, when he's talking about the dedication of the temple, he's talking about the nation of Israel, a people whom he, he adopted, brought out of Egypt, gave his commands to. And in a foreshadowing of one day, we would be his people. Now we're not a people based on nationality, but we're a people based on faith. We're the children of Abraham because of faith, because we believe in God. And in that belief, we become adopted into his family. And so who is he addressing here? My people, the people that I love, the people that I have rescued, the the people that I have come to reside with in their temple, in you and I. If my people, distinguished from the rest of the world. See, in a moment, even in a moment like this, I think we're sometimes tempted to think, you know, we read this and we, we say, yeah, if people would just repent, if the nation would just repent, if the world would just repent, yes, I agree. But this is addressing his people, the people that believe, the people that are called by his name, his children. That's who he's speaking to, us. He's speaking to us. will humble themselves. It's hard to be humble. Somebody should write a song about that. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. It is very hard to be humble. Humbling, to humble yourself is to make yourself lower. It's the opposite of pride and arrogance. Direct opposite. To humble ourselves. To take ourselves off the throne. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James chapter 4, verse 10. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. He does not teach the boisterous, arrogant, proud his way. He teaches the humble his way. People that are willing to lower themselves. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is such a difficult thing for us. If I, if I, when I try to be objective about our cultural situation and, and where we're even at as a church, I think the, the, probably the, the, the Achilles heel of our culture is pride and arrogance. You could say it was materialism. You could say it's all the wealth and the money, and those are issues. But I think ultimately it boils down to 
pride and arrogance are an Achilles heel for the type of culture that we live in here. Humbling ourselves is very, very hard. Nobody tells us what to do. I'm a self-made man. Those kinds of things that we declare and are a part of our independent type of culture. Nobody tells me what to do. I decide what right and wrong is. There is no standard other than my rationale about things. All those kind of things, those are idols that we don't see. We don't even realize that they're there. I've often used the analogy, and I'll use it again. In South Africa and the places that we work, they, they mix ancestor worship with Christianity, and it makes for a very strange blend. But, but if you were on the outside looking in, you would look at our situation, and you'd, you'd look at, see things and go, why, where, why is that? Why do American Christians act this way? Where does this pride come from? Where does this independence come from? Where does this self-made, I'm going to uh, master of my own destiny sort of mentality come from? Because it's not godly. And so we're in a situation where we have to humble ourselves. It's so hard to do. And take ourselves off the throne. I think more often than not, we don't realize we are on the throne. And that's, what I, that's the thing that keeps stirring in me and, and challenging me. I feel like God's challenging me with repeatedly in recent months is the idea that we don't see that we have put ourselves on the throne. We don't realize it, but when you hear it, sometimes go back and think about the things that you've said or the things that you've heard, and you go, wait a minute, I don't hear God as God. I hear man as God in those situations. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day that day, the return of Jesus, is what he's talking about here, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against uh, every so-called God or object of worship. Okay, he's talking about the, what we would call the Antichrist. You know, and there's a lot of theories and theology out, out there about the Antichrist, but, he, but he's talking, he's kind of introducing this idea, and it gives us some things to think about. Something that sets itself up against every object of worship. And we've seen since the Enlightenment period a rising in philosophy of, of there is no real God. There is no God. There are no gods. There is no supernatural. Man, and man starts putting himself into the place of God. And if you look throughout the last few hundred years, you can see that process taking place, a lawlessness, if you will. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I don't have time to unpack this all today, but I wanted to draw your attention to this passage of Scripture to consider uh, what it's really all about. Only he, he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Even then the spirit of lawlessness was at work. So we've really got this thing where we, we think of the Antichrist in terms of one particular man, which may actually be the case, but there's a much bigger thing going on here. Something that's been at work for a couple thousand years, a lack of law, a lawlessness, no truth, no law, no guideline. And because Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 through 14, Jesus talking, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I don't have, like I said, I don't have time to unpack all that, but I think there is a lawlessness. No, there is no law outside of me. I am the determiner of law for myself. My truth is relative. My beliefs are my beliefs, and I get to believe them, and I get to choose them, and I decide what is right and wrong, or there is no right and wrong. You see all the confusion this kind of thinking is starting to create in the culture and the world around us. It's very powerful. Anyway, moving on in Second Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, which is so hard, take themselves off the throne, and pray and seek my face. The face often translates into the presence. The, the word face in the Old Testament is often translated presence. So when you're seeking the face of God, you're seeking to be in the presence of God. You're not just looking for his face per se, but think about your own face. Where, where do you hear the tone and see the expression and have eye contact so you understand? Jason was joking with me earlier today, and I couldn't tell he was joking because I couldn't see his face because it was hiding behind the mask, right? What does it mean to seek his face? If my people will pray, we know what prayer is, and seek my face. If they want to be with me, okay, it's not just reciting prayers. It's a desire to be in the very presence of God. To You know, when you grab your kid and you go, look at me. That's exactly what it is. We want to be face-to-face with God, in the presence of God. Not just Holy Ghost goosebumps presence, but actually in the presence of God. Hearing what he's saying, feeling his spirit, understanding his emotion and the expressions on his face as he speaks to us. So when we read his word and we absorb his spirit, we're we're face-to-face with him. It's an interaction with God. It's about relationship. This is a relational phrasing to be in the presence of God, to seek God. If people will pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. First of all, this assumes that there would be any wicked ways to turn from. Are we guilty of judging that everyone else needs to repent when really me as an individual or us collectively maybe should? Repentance is the heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. That's Wayne Grudem's systematic theology definition of repentance. Repentance isn't just acknowledging with your brain that something is wrong. Okay, Many, many people do that and continue on in it anyway. All of us do at times. So it's not just the mental acknowledgement of something. It's just repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. It's not just the mental, hey, knowledge, I know that's wrong. That's not repentance. It also needs to come with the emotional component, this, uh, the approval of what Scripture says regarding sin, a true sorrow for it, a true sense of this was wrong and it grieves me. But again, emotion in and of itself isn't enough. We can feel badly about something, whether we know it's right or wrong, but that's not enough. That's not repentance. That's just feeling bad. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, we, we, 
we know that something's wrong or something's out of alignment or we come to realize that it is, like, oh, wow, I'm sorry about that. And then, then the decision to turn the other way, the actual literal meaning of repentance, to turn and go the other way, to reject something in order to obey Christ. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Again, there was this practice. You know, you, you, you see this where they, the king gets up and he tears his robes. You know, I, I, it, it's, a, it's a demonstrative, very visible act. But God's saying, I want more than that. Don't just stand up and rip your clothes. Rip your heart. Let your heart be opened. I want your heart. That's what he wants. His motivation is love. He wants the whole of us. He doesn't want our, just a demonstration of, of our ideas. He wants the whole of who we are in our heart. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Last verse. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Kylie, would you just leave this up here for the rest of the service, please? And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Search my heart, O oh God. Okay, so we're, we're in a moment that's very confusing. It's cloudy. There's chaos. We have to stop and start reflecting on what is true, what is right, what is good, what is from God. How do we navigate these stormy waters? What ideals and idols do we have that aren't godly? What ways we, that we've adopted? It's a great time to reflect on it. I don't know why God is doing this. I don't know if this, is, if this is God's version of Assyria on Israel or if it's just a goofy time or what it is. God is in it. And it's a great time for us to stop and go, search my heart, God. Is there anything in me that opposes you? Is it a good time to repent and to humble ourselves before God? So I'm going to do something this morning, and I'm going to invite you to join me. Um, I want to humble myself before God today. And what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to get on my knees right up here on the platform in a very sincere gesture to God to search our hearts, to examine us, to examine me. If there's anything we need to be repenting of, if God's putting his finger on some things in my life or in us as a church or even in us as a country or a world, I want the revelation of what that is. I want to know what God's heart is. And if you have anything, whether it's personal that you need to repent of before God and humble yourself for, or whether you want to just do that on behalf of the church or the nation, that's totally up to you. If you're able, though, I'm going to invite you to join me on my knees before God, and I'm going to take some time and pray, and then we're going to wrap it up this morning. If you physically can't, don't worry about it. You are the king of all kings. You're the God above every God. There is no one like you. There will be no one before you. You will not stand to have anyone take your place. You are holy and righteous and good. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy for us, that you love us so much 
that you would die for us. God, that you would rescue us, that you would endure patiently for hundreds of years to see a people turn to you. God, today I humble myself before you. I am not the king. I don't even want to be the king. I don't want to be on the throne in my life. God, I know it will go well if you are in your rightful place as king in my heart. God, your word transforms, your ways transform. Our way is folly and foolishness and destruction. But yours is the way everlasting. So God, I humble myself before you. And on behalf of Mount Helena Community Church, we humble ourselves before you today. God, search our hearts if there be any wicked way in us. God, anything that is not of you, any pride or arrogance, any sinfulness, any lust, any apathy, any arrogance, any falsehood, any lying. God, all the things that oppose you. God, we we ask you, examine each and every heart today. Lord, I pray that the power of your Spirit would be filling each one in here right now. God, drawing our minds to, Lord, revelation of who you are and what it is you're doing in us. God, help us to see what you are doing. We see what everyone else is doing, and it's crazy. It's maddening out there in the world. But God, you, you are our rock. You are all we have. So God, we humble ourselves before you today. God, turning from anything that is not of you. God, we want to be in your presence. We want to seek your face. God, I want to I be able to sense your tone and see the look in your eye and sense your heart for the moment and what you're leading us in. God, please have mercy upon this nation. God, have mercy upon the church. God, have mercy on the leaders in the world. God, by some power and might of yours, God, work something amazing here. God, draw many to you, those that have been running away from you, those that are hiding, those that are called, that are ignoring. God, I pray, Lord, that your power would speak, Lord, that your voice would speak in their ears and they would discern it and hear and be drawn to you. God, I pray that your grace would pour out, your your amazing grace, your grace that's bigger than all the sin of the world. God, it would be poured out upon us. And Father, that we would hear, that we would understand your heart and that we'd run into your throne room. We'd run to you, our loving Father, that you could embrace us, that you could encourage us, that you could strengthen us, Lord, to be who we're called to be in this moment in history. You are God and there is no other. So God, we confess our dependence upon you. And ask for your continued transformation in our lives. God, I pray for each individual, Lord, that you'd be bringing to mind, Lord, anything you want to put your finger on and change. Not because you're angry or hateful, but because you love. Because you want the heart. Because you want restoration with your broken family. Restore your family, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Just let him work on you for a minute. Thank you so much, God.
I pray even those that are watching online, Lord, that you'd be in their homes or wherever they're at, Lord, just working, working in power, God. Thank you, God. God, we pray for people in power and leadership, Lord, and, and for the election that's coming, God. Lord, that your hand would be mighty. God, that you'd be leading us all. God, bringing wisdom and clarity. We pray for breakthrough of clarity, breakthrough of even just true information. God, nobody knows what to believe right now. We just pray for truth. Truth in Jesus' name. You are truth. You are the truth. You're the way. You're the truth. You're the life. God, we praise you this morning. God, I thank you for this church. Thank you for these people today, Lord. I'm so glad to be a part of what you're doing. Give us the strength to endure and stand firm and to pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's it, you guys. Thanks for coming. Have a great day.